Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 to 40 is our text for today. We're wrapping up our series on love, my body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, where Paul describes the relationship the church is to have with the body, with other believers, and sandwiched in the middle is chapter 13, the famous love chapter. But that chapter 13 really describes love that we are to have in the body of Christ. And so he continues this thought process in chapter 14 about what does it mean to love the body and how do we contribute to the body. His theme has been edification and strengthening and building up of the body. We all are to be body builders. There's an order in the universe. There's a rhythm and there are seasons and there are things that are continually happening in the universe day by day. The earth rotates on its axis every 24 hours. The trip around the sun takes 365 days. And all of those things really, if you think about it, reflect God's character. God's character is one of order and one of rhythm and one that is consistent. He is a God of order. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, that we'll get to in a minute, Paul says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And so Paul reflects on God's nature in setting up his argument that he's going to give us in 1 Corinthians 14 about what it means to love the body and how we are to participate in the body. Genesis chapter 8, 22, we read, as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And so after the flood and after God destroyed the earth and Noah and his sons came out of the ark, God made this new promise that life on earth was going to be a series of of order and of continual movement of summer and winter and day and night. We live in some very uncertain and chaotic times, and we need to hear the encouragement from God's word that there is a rhythm and an order to all that we see around us. Even though it feels like the world is in chaos, God is a God of order who is sovereign over all of that. And we don't have to be fearful because we know that he is a God of order and not a God of chaos. When God created the universe in Genesis chapter 1, the account of creation goes, and there was evening and morning the first day, or day one, evening and morning a second day. Now there's a reason why in Genesis it goes from evening to morning. The writer of Genesis was trying to get the point across in creation. It went from chaos to order. In fact, in chapter 2 of Genesis 1, It says the earth was an uninhabitable wasteland. And so what did God do? God took this uninhabitable wasteland, this place of chaos and disorder, and then he ordered it. So the six days of creation are God tidying up and ordering this creation. That's the God that we serve. And as the body of Christ, we are also the bride of Christ. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. We are to reflect the very nature and the character of God. We are to extend his rule and reign of his kingdom, bringing order out of disorder. That is our mandate as believers, as we carry on the commission that he gave all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 to subdue the earth and fill it and rule over it. We, as people in God's kingdom, are to be people who bring order to chaos, even in difficult times like this. We bring order 
out of chaos. There is an order in the church as the bride of Christ. We reflect this God who is a God of order, and we are to bring this beauty and order into the world. Well, how does Paul describe that? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26, and we see that he says this. What shall we then say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am saying to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So Paul, again, is using the specific situation in the church at Corinth. They were these gifted believers, and they were misusing the gifts that God had given them. And So Paul is now using the gifts as an illustration. The focus of 1 Corinthians 14 is not the gifts, but the focus of the reason Paul is writing is because they were misusing the gifts. And so Paul said, I, here's, here's how I want you to operate in the church. And so he gives us two instructions in this uh, section of Scripture that we're looking at today. In verse 26, he says this, Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. That's Paul's instruction. The very first thing that he tells us is, okay, Corinthians, I'm using these gifts as an illustration, and I want you to know that every you, you are not doing it correctly, so everything needs to be done in a fitting and orderly way. Paul is focusing on guidelines for church assemblies. And so he said some believers have these gifts, a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, tongues, interpretation. And so what Paul is doing is he's recognizing these gifts. And what he's not saying is he's not commanding that, that all of these be part of their experience. But what he's saying is that these gifts, this is contributes either to disorder or to chaos in your assemblies. So he corrects the situation and he says you need to practice these things from the standpoint of edification and not for chaos, for strengthening and for building up. He uses this term again in verse 26 of building up instead of tearing down. And so he talks about three groups whose verbal activities in the assembly was inappropriate. He addresses three specific groups that who were, who were using 
their speech or their gifts of speech in ways that was contributing to chaos and was not building up the church. He addresses disorderly tongue speakers. He says no more than three. This limits spontaneity and only if there is an interpreter present. So what he's saying is that this spiritual activity is not something you can't control and it's not something that is, is to add to chaos. He earlier warned in chapter 14 that if unbelievers come in and there's this chaos, they will think that you're out of your minds. And as believers, we are to be in our right minds. We are to be rational, not rationalistic, but rational. And so he addresses these disorderly tongue speakers and he says, you are contributing to the chaos. So really what he's saying is you need to rein in your tongue. He talks about disorderly prophets. And the prophet, when he speaks, Whatever he says needs careful weighing by others. John Calvin addressed the theological issue by saying that the teaching of God is not subjected to the judgment of men, but their task is simply to judge by the Spirit of God whether it is, is his word which is declared or men are wrongly parading what they themselves have made up. And so Paul says in this group, these uh, prophets and these people, uh, you weigh what they say against the word of God. And so what he says is there is no seizure of the prophet's spirit, but he is in control of what he is saying. Remember in the pagan culture of Corinth, at the pagan temples, there was this frenzied spiritual ecstasy and these outbursts, and they were looking at that as spiritual. And Paul says, you are different than the pagans. You need to worship differently, Christians, when you are together. And as you worship together, you are still in control of your faculties. Now, the third group that he mentions are disorderly women. Paul gets a bad rap sometimes. We've already seen this through Corinthians, that we look at him as he's anti-woman or he is against women. But that's really not what Paul is saying in the context. That's why it's important to walk through a book in its context and not pull a paragraph or a few verses out of its context. And so what Paul says is women, in verse 34, should remain silent in the churches. These abuses he's talking about are specifically, first of all, in the church assemblies. He's not regulating the private lives outside of the church assemblies. When the church gathers, the assembly needs to be different than the pagan assembly. And so there was a situation at Corinth where apparently the tongue speakers and these prophets and this group of women were being disorderly. And so Paul is injuncting or, or commanding in, in this injunction for all of them to be silent. The answer to the chaos of using speech was simply to be silent. Each one of these groups still had the control of their own tongue to not contribute to chaos. And so Paul says the disorderliness of these women were that something in the assembly was causing chaos. They were not submitting to their husbands and not, not uh, following his lead. And so, but, but in the context, the Greek word in the phrase not permitted to speak is the ordinary word for oral speaking or talking. However, in this context, 
Paul is referring to a specific kind of speaking, namely the public use of the miraculous spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and prophesying. In apostolic times, women had such gifts and could use them outside the church assembly or outside the public assembly, but not in the assembly. And so what Paul is prohibiting here is the misuse when he says women are to be silent, but he already earlier has said that they can pray and prophesy. So the technical term that he's addressing is well, women need to be silent in speaking in these miraculous ways. He's not saying they can never say anything. He's not saying that they can never say a, a word, but they were contributing to the chaos of these tongues speakers, the people who were speaking in different languages all at the same time, and it created this, this chaos and this, dis and this disorder. And so somehow... These group of women at Corinth were contributing to that chaos. And so Paul gives the same direction to all of them, men or women. And he says, be silent. You're talking and you're all overriding each other with your words is not contributing to order, but it is contributing to chaos. And God is a God of order and not of chaos. Paul did not view the church as a society of free speech where everybody just says whatever they want, whatever's on their mind, all at the same time. But he said it needs to be restricted within the context of a church assembly to bring honor and glory to God through what is spoken. It's orderly, and it's not, as, it's not chaotic. And so he commands quietness, whether it's the tongue speaker, the prophet, or this group of women, he demands quietness as the antidote for chaos. Sometimes the best thing we can do when we are in a chaotic situation is do exactly what Paul's commanding these three groups is to be quiet. Have you ever been in an argument? Do you know who wins an argument? We think the person who is the loudest or the person who speaks the most words. But do you know who really wins an argument? Is a person who can remain calm in control of their thoughts, in control of their words, and a person who doesn't use very many words. The proverb said, where, sin, uh, where words abound, sin is not absent. The person who wins the argument is the one who holds their tongue. And so Paul is saying, speaking can contribute to chaos. And so in the assembly, the, the, this chaotic speaking needs to be reined in. And so the first thing he tells us in verse 26, everything must be done in a, a way so that the church may be built up. There is nothing strengthening, there is nothing encouraging, there is nothing comforting about being in a place where it feels chaotic. Some of you are thinking, <laughs> you haven't been to my house at Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody starts yelling and talking, and, and, and don't you feel at that moment there's a sense of anxiety and fear? And that's what Paul is saying. But the assembly needs to be the place where we can find some sense of order and some sense of, of a semblance of structure in a world that has really gone mad. That's why he tells us in verse 40, the other command, he said, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Fitting and orderly way is that Paul says that a prophet's words needs to be weighed because it could be in, in conflict with Paul's instructions. The uh, Paul's word as an apostle 
overrides anything that the prophet would ever say. Paul was uh, radically altering the Corinthians' use of these gifts. What he says is that two or three at the most, but what he was saying is that everything must be done in a fitting and orderly way. It is not a sign of God's presence when people feel overcome and in a some kind of um, of, uh, of a babbling seizure of their tongue that they can't control it. Paul's saying, no, that's, that's not the church of Christ. The church of Jesus is everything must be done in a fitting and orderly way. So that it doesn't contribute to chaos. It doesn't contribute to disorder. The assembly arises from this place where this, uh, we reflect on God's uh, nature, this one triune God that he talks about in 1 Corinthians. And God does not distribute gifts in a disorderly way. And the pillar that that rests on is agape love. It's a concern for other people demonstrated in choices made in the style and the conduct of the assembly when we assemble ourselves together. If you've been in the church very long, at some point along your way, you have probably been in a chaotic assembly or in a chaotic group a church meeting that has gone haywire or some argument that sets out or, or people are, are up in arms with each other. And what happens in those moments is the very antithesis of what the church is for. The church is to provide some stability. The church is to provide some encouragement and some strengthening and some order. And in those moments, when we are in those chaotic places, it wounds us somehow. And those memories are still very fresh if you think about them. And you view the assembly differently if you have gone through one of those hard experiences. And Paul says that's not building up. And that's not strengthening. And it's not encouraging. Everything needs to be done in a fitting and orderly way. Gordon Fee, a commentator, asked how many how it is that so many 20th century believers spend so much energy getting around the plain meaning of verses 39 and 40. That Paul is very plainly telling us that things are to be done in a fitting and orderly way. In the assemblies, as we gather ourselves together, we are to reflect God's character. And God's character is one of order and not one of chaos. Well, let's look at a couple chaos creators. What is it that contributes to this chaos? There's a story in Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can pause this, go get it, and come back and resume. But in Acts chapter 19, there is a riot in Ephesus. Verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way the new found Christian faith, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and is practically and impractically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's what Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians 14 this whole time, is that 
There is only one true God, and the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's why we are not to participate in their styles of worship or things that will have the appearance that we are somehow connected to these gods that are no gods at all. But Demetrius goes on, there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. They were protecting their idols. And that's what happens in our lives when we are in these chaotic situations, isn't it? <clears throat> because we want, to, we want to protect our idols. We talked about idols a few weeks ago about why we do that. It's, it's our idols of approval <clears throat> and our idol of, of, um, of having to be right. And our idol of, uh, of our significance is tied up into whatever our idol is. And as soon as somebody starts to chip away at our idol, we get very defensive. And that's what's happening here. When they heard this, in verse 28, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. <clears throat> we will defend our idols. We will get louder and shout louder. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And they all rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. But the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32 is a great description of a crowd that's in chaos. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And isn't that true of chaos? We get so wrapped up in it. We get so fearful and panicked that we don't even know why we're fearful, why we're panicked, and we're caught up in this chaos, and that's where these people were. The city clerk quieted down the crowd and basically said, folks, we don't want the Romans to have to come in and quell this riot, so please calm yourselves down. I think there's a few chaos creators that we can see in this story in Acts that come also in our own lives if we're not careful. And the first chaos creator is envy and selfish ambition. What were these silversmiths worried about? They were worried about their income. They were worried about losing their reputation. They were envious of Paul because the way was gaining followers and Artemis was losing followers. And so there was a sense of envy and selfish ambition. It's the very thing that James talks about. James chapter three, verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Envy and selfish ambition. Ambition isn't bad. The motivation to get ahead and the motivation to improve and the motivation to improve our lives and to learn and to grow, that's a good ambition. The problem is selfish ambition where I start to exalt self and I start to lift up myself and I start to override other people because of what I want. And really what envy is, envy is I'm not content with what I have or I'm not able to rejoice with others, but I want what others have to the extent that I'm going to do anything I can to get it. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. And so we see envy and selfish ambition. And if you have been in chaotic church assemblies at times or in church fights or church splits or church arguments or all of the things that we can experience at the root of it, you may find envy and selfish ambition. Somebody's not getting their way. Somebody doesn't like what somebody else is doing. Or 
I can do it better than they can. My idea is better. The way I want to do it is better. And so I'm not going to go along with what you want to do. And so we have envy and selfish ambition. And it starts to contribute to this chaos. Remember, Paul's injunctions in 1 Corinthians 14 are against our speaking things, the ways that we communicate. And he says the best antidote is for silence. But at the root of why we communicate in these places, and this was the fault that he was placing on the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, is that these speakers, whether it was the tongue speakers, the prophets, or this group of women, what they were doing was it was selfish. They were putting themselves out, not worrying about other people. They were lifting up themselves and not really worrying about was this building up other people, but they wanted the attention and they wanted to be on display. I think another chaos creator is arguing. Don't we see that in this incident in Ephesus? In 28, verse 28 of Acts 19, there's two things. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. What were they doing? Those who were supporting their idol, supporting Artemis, were arguing with those of the way, and they started uh, shouting louder, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What is that? It's an argument. They wanted to be louder than their opponents. They wanted to drive their, their point home louder than their opponents. And so that's exactly what they were doing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing. In an argument, you can guarantee a couple of things. If you see a group arguing or even two people arguing, one or both are out of control. That's what arguing is. Arguing is the emotions rush in, the brain checks out, my mouth takes over, and I start arguing. And that's the very issue that Paul is addressing in the church in Corinth. As it relates to using their mouth, they were out of control. Now, he wasn't saying they were arguing, but the principle is the same. The use of their mouth was out of their control, and they were contributing to chaos in the assembly. And that's exactly what arguing does. Arguing is our mouth is out of our control, and we are contributing to chaos with the very thing that we saw at Ephesus. The third chaos creator is anger. Verse 28 says this, when they heard this, they were furious and they were angry. Anger comes when our idols are attacked. When those places where we find our security and our identity and our worth, other than the triune God who has created us, anything else that we place our trust, our worth, and our identity in is an idol. And what 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 happened in Ephesus happens in our own lives is that when that is challenged for these silversmiths, Demetrius was, uh, and, those, and others, Artemis was being challenged and they got very angry. Again, James 1.20 says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger is not having our ambitions met, so we resort to anger. Anger is, a, is usually an out-of-control emotion it's the volcano that builds up and the top blows off and then the lava of words, perhaps even those rocks flying out, hurt those around us. 
and anger contributes to chaos. And so we see that in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So what Paul says is in the church, I want you to do those things that build up the church. Envy, selfish ambition, arguing, and anger never build up, but they always tear down. If you think about it, chaos is really looking out for ourselves, but order is looking out for others. And the answer and the antidote is in chapter 13. It's that kind of middle chapter of this series that we have been in, to love my body. Love, love is the answer. I know that's a cliche, and I know how the world uses it, but that's not how Paul uses it, because when Paul uses the word love, he's talking about that self-sacrificial love that puts the needs of others first. And love, as the Bible describes it, is truly the antidote or the answer to these chaos creators. And love is truly the answer to the chaos that we find. Chaos is self-ish. Order is others-focused. We live in a time now where people are very worried and scared, and often we are focused on ourselves to the expense of others. And so if you have tried to buy toilet paper recently or paper towels recently, you walk in and the shelves are empty. Why? Because out of fear and out of panic and out of misguided information, people are hoarding beyond what they need because they're only looking out for themselves. And then when someone who comes along who truly needs it can't find it, we are hurting that other person because of our selfish ambition and our fear and our anxiety. I heard a story of stores in Italy where the virus has hit uh, tremendously hard. Many people have died and many people are sick. One person made the observation that the stores in Italy are open, but they only allow a limited number of customers to come into the store. And so outside of the store, there is a line of people And so if a store can only have perhaps maybe 10 people in there at a time, they allow 10 people in and the rest of the people are lined up outside, but they are lined up neatly and orderly six feet apart and they patiently wait their turn. And so when one person comes out, the next person in line goes in and everybody steps up, but they still maintain a distance of six feet uh, between them. And the person who observed this said, this is very unusual for Italians who are huggers and kissers and like to gather together. Why? Because they're thinking of others. And it takes great restraint to bring order to chaotic situations, but we are created to be orderlies. And so love is the answer. 1 Corinthians 13, love is the answer to envy and selfish ambition. Verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about love. It does not envy. It is, does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. So love is the answer to the chaos creator of envy and selfish ambition. What about arguing? Paul very explicitly said that in verse 14, the first part, love is patient and love is kind. Patience and kindness would eliminate most of our arguments. We argue because we are very impatient and then our words take over and we become very unkind. What about anger? Chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says this, it is not easily angered. And so love is the answer to the chaos that we find, not only in our churches, but in our homes and even in our world today, that there is a, the sense of order comes 
through this agape style love where I lay down my life for someone else. I sacrifice for someone else. And it is very hard to do that without Jesus at times because he is the ultimate model of what love looks like as he laid down his life for us. If you remember in our, or you're following in the Core 52 challenge, very early in one of the very first chapters, he talks about this essence of we were created to be orderlies. He says this in the book, Mark Moore writes, we were made to manage the creation of God. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He says, we continue God's act of creation. What makes this more amazing and what raises the stakes is that God is personally and perpetually involved in creating and recreating this masterpiece of a world with the help of humans. God created the heavens and the earth. He leaves it up to us to make of it a world even more wonderful. Our lives are rooted in our createdness and in the character of God. And as the church reflects the character and the nature of God, we are to be those who bring order out of chaos. Where do you find yourself struggling to bring order out of chaos? Maybe envy, selfish ambition, Maybe you are a arguer. <laughs> Maybe anger has its way more than you would like it to have its way. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, everything, everything, everything must be done that the church may be built up. The first question I ask myself is, does this build someone else up or does it build me up? The reason I get angry is because I feel like it builds me up. And the reason I like to argue is because I feel like it builds me up, but it really doesn't do anything for the other person. And so in, in acting out of love, of sacrifice, I think, how is this going to benefit the other person? And so Paul's injunction to us is everything is to be done that the church may be built up. You are a bodybuilder. He also said everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Fitting and orderly often means I have to have great amount of patience, which is the very thing that love is. It's patient and it's kind. It doesn't mean I always have to have the last say, the first say, or even the middle say. I don't have to have any say as he is talking to these Corinthian believers that the antidote was silence. To just hold your tongue. To close your mouth. You think about 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul is talking to a church that had these great and wonderful spiritual gifts. And you would think that Paul would say, have at it, use these any way that you like. But Paul understood that being truly spiritual means that we do things and we use our giftedness what, what those actions to build others up. That's what true spirituality means. 1 Corinthians 14 is not saying what many people think it's saying. Paul is reining in. He's pulling back. He's giving guidelines to our spiritual lives, that our spiritual lives are not just about us, but we are gifted for the benefit of other people. And if I am not benefiting other people, I need to pull back and not use that gift or use that action or say that thing. It's always tempered, always tempered by love. And that's why we've been talking about loving 
my body. Not my physical body, but the body of Christ, the church. How are you doing at loving others? How are you doing at reigning in your tongue? How are you doing at building others up? How are you doing at being part of a fitting and orderly way? We always think about Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, stores open early, oftentimes now even on Thanksgiving. And we've all seen those scenes of people lined up outside of Walmart or Target until the door's unlocked. And then everybody rushes in and they're grabbing things and they're knocking people over and people are getting hurt. And we would say what? That it's chaos. And why is there chaos? Because of selfish ambition. Because of envy. Oftentimes, it results in anger and arguing. Would you take those things before the Lord? Just have Him honestly search your heart and say, Lord, do I contribute to chaos? Or am I an orderly? Do I bring order to situations that could become very volatile? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your instructions in your word. God, we thank you for Jesus in us. We couldn't do this without him. And Father, as we live in this very chaotic time, we as your people as the body of Christ, are not to contribute to the chaos, but we are to bring order, which is the command to rule the earth, subdue it, extend your reign and your rule over creation. And so, Father, even in these very chaotic times, even in these times when it seems that there is no place to land, we thank you for the solid rock of Jesus, that we can stand on him. He is the unshakable foundation. And so coming from that, we can bring order into chaos through our words, through our actions. Father, help us to truly love. Love the way that Jesus loved us by sacrificing for us. Father, we thank you for the testimony that we, your church, can be even in chaotic times as we continue to bring order out of chaos, because that's the God that you are, the God that we love, and the God that we serve. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.